The context of the first reading from the book of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah was one of the Jews living in the exile in Babylon, where he was the cupbearer for the king. Some of his relatives were among the remnant left in Jerusalem. They came to tell him about the the sorry state of the city. The walls and gates had been destroyed, leaving the city vulnerable. Walls were absolutely critical to a city in that time. Without walls, there was no protection from invaders. So Nehemiah asked the king if he could return to his Jerusalem to rebuild it, and the king granted his request. And so he returned to Jerusalem and was crestfallen at the destruction of the city that he witnessed. But Nehemiah rallied the inhabitants of Jerusalem, asking each to concentrate on rebuilding the walls or gates that had stood in their sector of the city. But the kings and rulers surrounding Judah mocked their efforts. They didn't think that the Jews could do it. After all, Jerusalem had been gutted during the exile. All of the rulers and the wise men and the skilled tradesmen and the priests had been uprooted and deported to Babylon. The city was a shell of its former glory. But the work was accomplished in record speed, just 52 days, despite the fact that the Jews were expecting an attack from their enemies at all times, and so they had to divert half of their men to keeping an armed watch, lest the opposing armies try to attack before the reconstruction was completed. Even the men who were working on the walls had to carry their swords with them, in case they needed to join the defense of the city. When the task was complete, the walls rebuilt, their enemies discouraged by the lightning progress the Jews had made in fortifying their city. Then Nehemiah gathered the people together and with Ezra read to them from the law of the Lord. And many of the Jews, when this was finished, began to weep because they realized that although their city had been destroyed physically, so too it was the case that they had failed to keep the law of the Lord. Just as the walls of the city needed to be rebuilt, their practice of the faith needed to be rebuilt as well. So it is also in our times. On Friday, our church and the larger pro-life movement conducted the annual March for Life, commemorating the historic Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion. We marched in protest of the 55 million abortions that have been performed in our country since 1973, in prayer for all of those unborn lives that have been lost, and the lives of the mothers whose lives have been torn apart by this practice, and in hope that sometime soon our nation will repent and repair itself from this grievous injustice. One could, in effect, analogize our culture today to Jerusalem in the exile period. The walls have been destroyed. The basic principle that life has sacred value has been breached. Not just by abortion, though of course abortion is the most horrific and tragic example. Once we lose the idea that life has an inherent dignity that must be protected, we are, in a sense, open to be completely overrun by the devil by any crazy idea or ideology or passion that will take our country down even darker roads. Those walls needed to be rebuilt in Jerusalem so that the Jews could have the peace and security needed to contemplate a renewal of their faith. And I think the same is true of a renewal of faith in our times. It must be based upon and go hand in hand with building a culture of life. 
a culture that sees dignity in all persons, even the unborn, the elderly, the handicapped, the poor, the immigrant, even the criminal. We cannot build a foundation of or we cannot build a house on a foundation of sand. A Christian nation must be built on a primordial respect for life in all of its aspects. I say this not to suggest that it is a matter of phase one and then phase two. We don't wait around until a culture of life is, has been built in our country before we attend to the needs of the church or the duty to evangelize others in the faith. But it does put into focus what must be the main thrust of our engagement with the world, the building of a society in which every human life is nurtured and cherished. But the good news is that building a culture of life is not some gloomy project. As I can attest from Friday, despite the miserably cold weather, it was, as always, a joy to experience the energy and vibrancy of the march. We see that after Ezra had proclaimed the law to the Jews, they wept because they realized how badly they had been living. But he told them, do not be sad, do not weep. Go, eat rich foods and drink sweet drinks, and allot portions to those who have nothing prepared. For today is holy to the Lord. Do not be saddened this day, for rejoicing in the Lord must be your strength. The greatest witness for a culture of life and for our faith and our church is joy. Yes, confronting the tragedies in our time is hard work, often thankless hard work. It's prayer and fasting and even, yes, mourning sometimes. It's hard work to bring the teachings of our church to life in the world, in politics, in commerce, in the arts. But this is our duty and our joy, our joy in the Lord, because he gave us life. And so, too, because of that, we can help to bring life to others. As Christians, all of us must be invested in bringing about this renewal in our world and in our church. I would suggest that we pray regularly the words of our Savior as he read them aloud in Nazareth. It could perhaps be the prayer of the pro-life movement. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.